0: And welcome to another episode of Young Mormon Feminist Podcast. I am your host, Julia. Mormon feminism has made a lot of headlines lately, much in part thanks to ordained Women and its founder, Kate Kelly. But as we know, Mormon feminism is multidimensional. There are other groups and other individuals that make up Mormon feminism and the Mormon women's movement, including those who do not push for female ordination. I have with me Nyland McBain. She is the founder of the Mormon Women Project, a website that profiles everyday Mormon women with extraordinary stories. She has three books. She wrote a collection of personal essays called How to Be a 21st Century Pioneer Woman, was the editor of Sisters Abroad, interviews from the Mormon Women Project, and authored the recently released Women at Church, Magnifying LDS Women's Local Impact. Nyland, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Tell our listeners a little bit about how your book, Women at Church, came about.
1: Women at Church is the outgrowth of about five years of really trying to keep my ear to the ground on uh, the conversation about women in the LDS faith. And I, I, I sort of was self-appointed to that, that role when I started the Mormon Women Project in January of 2010. It was just my effort to collect the stories of some of the women that I had Grown up with, uh, in particular, and who really had given me a foundation for understanding that Mormonism produces remarkable women and a variety of women with very diverse interests and abilities. And um, as the project grew, uh, it, it gained more and more attention, and I sort of gained more and more attention. And people started telling me their stories. And so, over the past several years, I've I've been privy to. Um, probably hundreds of, of, of men and women's stories about what the church means to them, what the gender division of labor means to them uh, as, as members in the church and as members of a do-it-yourself church where we are the ones who make our church community what it is. Um, and so I hope that the book is really a product of, of listening to these stories and seeing um, ways that we can move forward together as a community with the resources that we have available to us today um, with what what we have in our hands um, at at this moment. And, you know, for some, I believe um, it will be uh, an introduction to some new ideas and some new feelings, and I hopefully have presented those ideas and feelings in a way that that, uh, readers who are new to these ideas can can be introduced to them in in very uh, sympathetic and comfortable ways. But it might be um, it might be very sort of commonplace for other readers, and that's okay. Everybody's going to come to this book with different experiences and different perspectives on what it means to be a woman at church. And I really hope that this book is more than anything a conversation starter. Perhaps for those um, who have struggled with their place as a woman in the church, it might be a way to to uh, present feelings and, and thoughts uh, in in a way that. Um, Perhaps a family or friend, family member or friend, uh, might be more uh, willing to entertain and might be more be more comfortable reading about um, from a source like this. So I hope that there's something in there for everybody.
0: Now you wrote about and you just talked about how you wrote this book for a wide variety of audiences, whether it's the bishop of a ward who really is not familiar with. Um, problems that women may have in the church, or, you know, like you said, women who do have struggles with um, gender roles in the church. Where do you think this book's place is in kind of broader Mormon feminism?
1: You know, I think it actually, um, it, it's not in any way uh, presenting an ideology. It's not presenting uh, an academic approach on feminism. In fact, I don't use the word feminism or feminist at all in the book. And um, that was a deliberate effort to try to have a conversation about women at church that was um, separate and apart from what could be for a very important target audience for this book, uh, somewhat of a a polarizing term, not because uh, we don't believe that uh, women have, uh, should should be given a safe space in which to develop their full potential uh, I think that our doctrine demands that we believe that uh, and and I, I know that many members of the church uh, who believe that doctrine do associate themselves with being feminists and that is that I wouldn't have it otherwise however I do think for a particular audience um, that that ist on the end of end of feminist um suggests uh, a a separation or an activism that our our particular church culture is not always comfortable with. And and I just simply wanted to demonstrate that this doesn't have to be um, a one side or the other conversation. It can be a conversation that we all participate in uh, without drawing battle lines, and I hope that I succeeded in doing that.
0: Well, and I think it's pretty, um, I I I definitely think it's noted that, The word feminism is absent from the book. Uh, Some feminists will come to this book and say, well, I think, Nylan, you missed an opportunity to really educate people who aren't as familiar with these issues um, about and help normalize the word feminist and feminism, uh, where it's not, like I said, it's not just this single issue female ordination, which some people may only exposure to Mormon feminism may be with. It, it's this multidimensional thing, and a lot of the ideas that you present in your book are ideas that have presented by Mormon feminists for years. So what is your response to that approach? It's a great question. I don't think that I shied away at all from, from thoroughly
1: explaining several of the, the main sources of tension for women in the church today. I have six points uh, that I think outline how the lived experience in the world today contrasts with the woman's lived experience in church today and um, a number of things along those lines that I think really point to to um, what mormon feminists are are feeling and I and perhaps they're not stated strongly enough for some that's okay I think again it's an introduction to those concepts so I don't shy away from talking about those concepts at all however I do feel that for an audience that doesn't Necessarily identify itself as feminists at the moment. Um, feminism is something uh, you know I believe, and and I would think that 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 many of your listeners have experienced is something that one almost awakens to, right? It's something that can be spurred on by a particular experience. And for me, in the in the communication that I've had with people over the years, many people have come to me and said, "I never considered any of these issues until my daughter started struggling." Or until my wife had an uh, episode with a bishop, or and so for so it seems to me that feminism as as a ideology is not something that I personally could um, could sort of um, overlay on someone's experience. I wanted them to come to the book with their own experience. I wanted to present the the key concepts to them, the key tensions to them, and I have to then assume from living in the modern world and having ideas of, of feminism playing out all around them, that, that those who have not yet had a feminist awakening will have that opportunity to ask themselves, okay, I, I think I understand what these tensions are, and I think I might be a feminist. You know? And I do think many people will come to that realization from reading the book, but even if they don't put a label on it, I thought what was most important was to have them Get in touch with those tensions and to develop some sort of sympathy for them.
0: Now you're building on a lot of ideas that Mormon feminists have been talking about for a while. Where did you draw a lot of your ideas from? So um, I I interviewed
1: probably just in the in from January of this year till till I submitted the manuscript. Um, I did a, um, a a, a deliberate and focused effort to interview people just for this book. And I would say that the interviews for this book um, probably were 50-50 male and female. Um, because I really wanted the book to to represent um, both women's what women are experiencing uh, both in a positive and negative light and also the way men are men are doing what they can to uh, magnify the impact of women in their local wards and congregations. So I would say that the majority of women that I interviewed um, were not at that time in official callings. It's not like I limited myself to Relief Society presidents exclusively. I did have a lot of Stake Relief Society and Ward Relief Society presidencies and, and other uh, female-led organization presidencies, but uh, a lot of lay, lay female members as well. On the male side, I I did talk almost exclusively with people who are currently in uh, leadership roles because I, want, I was mostly asking them about what are they doing in their wards and stakes. There were a number of people I interviewed who would not, a number of men I interviewed who would not define themselves as feminists who shared with me kind of that awakening that I'm talking about where they've worked with a really strong Relief Society president and she's made them aware of some of these issues and, and he, 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 he's come to it and sort of understanding for himself of these things. Um, and I thought that that was a really imp- important perspective for me to get to in those interviews. So it was really the almost every story in the book is, is from an in-person, over-the-phone email interview that was conducted from January of this year till about June
0: Sounds like a lot of work. <laughs> it, was a lo- it was a lot of
1: work. I do want to say, though, that I know that there are other groups who have been collecting stories like this. And and um, in 2012, when I did the FAIR presentation, uh, which has been widely circulated, and for the first time presented some of these ideas, um, several of the ideas that I presented in that talk uh, were shared with me from uh, the LDS Wave group, which I know at that same time was sort of starting to look at this approach of um celebrating things that are happening in a, at a grassroots level um and i've seen a number of other lists in the in the inter- intervening years that have taken that approach as well but all of the stories in the book uh actually are my own
0: well and you talk about the pamphlet from lds wave in your book uh-huh. and how that helped some people and i think that this um book is great in that it collects a lot of these anecdotal experiences about some of how some of these changes are happening in certain pockets around the world and i think that provides bolstering and precedent for women who are asking for these changes for example you know a woman who wants to hold her baby during a blessing you know the bishop may never have heard of that ever happening right Um, but you know, she can show them the experiences that other women have had in these books and the bishop can find more comfort in that, oh, I'm not the, if I let this happen, I'm Absolutely. not the only one who Absolutely. is putting myself on the line there. So I think that that's valuable. And and if I could just say a word about
1: that, I think one of the things that I, when I say I'd love this book to start a conversation, it's exactly that. We, we have uh, a communication method in the church that is very much top down, but we also have a communication method that's very word-of-mouth, right? So a lot of what we know about other wards and stakes comes from either, you know, the migration of our people from different wards where they take stories with them from, well, this happened to me in this ward, and so, you know, I'm going to take it to this new ward and suggest it there, or uh, just by word-of-mouth through families that are living in different wards with different personalities and cultures. But we really don't have any sort of, like, official best practices, sharing opportunity across those wards, sort of in that middle level, right? Right. And um, that's, that's one of the things that I hope will come out of this book. And that's why we developed the site women at where you can submit your own story of what's happening in your ward and you can read other stories of what is happening in, in their wards. And they're anonymous, and they don't even, they don't tell where which ward they're happening in. But the idea is exactly what you said, just to normalize that practice so that when somebody comes to their bishop and says, I'd like to hold my baby, that bishop can say, oh, you know, I've, I've heard of this being done. It might not be done in any ward I've ever lived in, and it might not be done in a ward that any of my family members live in, but I've heard it being done because of this crowdsourced sharing of, of things that, have, that are working, right, or things that have been tried. Um, and that's that's really a hope that I have is exactly that.
0: When you talk a lot about, and the structure of the book is about working within the current handbook of the church and not making changes or asking for changes doctrinally or handbook or otherwise, why do you take this approach? I'm a pre- supremely practical person, I think. <laughs> uh,
1: I, I, you know, I... I know and love many women who I would describe as born activists, and um, the the world would not turn without them. For me, I look at our situation and I say, "Wow, we have a lot to work with right here." Um, and I think that I think that one way to achieve uh, you know more long term, perhaps lofty uh, uh, um, aspirations for our for our culture and our people. Is to truly create a new standard of normalized behavior, and that might just be a tick or two above our current standard of normalized behavior. But I think that there's value in that, rather than you know, um, rather than just uh, uh, not not feeling that there's any worth in using what we have right now. I uh, quite on the contrary believe that there's that there's room for us to. Um, to to work as a people to move ourselves uh, in, in a more positive direction, even within the parameters that we have now. And, you know, I have had a very positive experience in the church as a woman. And for me, I, it was a very practical approach to saying, what has it been in my own life that's enabled me to have such a positive experience and to really, you know, see the good in the gospel beyond... Uh, some of the foibles that happen to all of us as women at church. And it was that approach that I, I thought could be useful uh, to many uh, mainstream and perhaps even conservative members of the church today. Um, so I'm, it's, it's a very practical, and it's a very, um, I think, of the here and now uh, approach approach which I hope will you know, continue uh, our, our, our focus as a people on the issue of, of women at church and what we might be in another 10 or 20 or 30 years.
0: So do you think that if, let's say, a war just goes through this book and implements, change, 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 do you think that that is the end point or are there next steps after that? What, what happens after that?
1: You know... You know, I'm not sure.
0: I again I I I don't have it all
1: figured out and I have never I have never claimed to. I mean, I think that that the world in which our girls are growing up in, I have three young daughters, I don't know what the world is going to be like for them uh, when they're when they're grown up. And so I would never say that this is an end point. Um, I do think that exploration and innovation can continue uh, even even without doctrinal change, and that is that. But that I don't know. I don't have a good answer for you know what the ideal church would look like. You know, I think, I think it's it's helpful to go back to some of the statements of our early uh, foremothers who who seemed to have a, a, a comfort level with uh, the interdependency of, of men and women in in achieving the the church's ultimate purposes, both temporally and spiritually. Um, you know, you read some statements by Eliza Snow, who, who who testified time and time again of the interdependency of men and women to work together, and the interdependency of men and women to receive exaltation together. And, um, and that's something that, you know, I have, again, I have felt comfortable with in my life. So I wouldn't say that I have any sort of, you know, further end game than simply enhancing that cooperation and interdependence that, some of our foremothers had testimonies
0: of. Well, and that brings up an interesting point because there, as you wrote in your book, there are things that women in the church have had before that we no longer have the release society magazine, budget independence, the ability um, or authorization, I suppose to give blessings. Um, so even if these changes, that positive changes that we are experiencing now and that um, you talk about in your book, even if these things are implemented, we have no assurance that they're going to stay that way. So how do we protect women in the church um, when we're really, uh, I guess, subject to local male leadership?
1: That's a very good question. Um, how do we protect... You know, it's it's... It's very interesting. The uh, one of the things I talk about in the book is that uh, the the conversation about the the correctness or the ability of women to give healing blessings was actually a hundred year conversation. Um, you know, it, it it's often portrayed as something that you know the sort of nineteenth century foremothers were able to do, and then all of a sudden, nobody in recent history has any recollection of it, and so you know. It 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 must have just stopped abruptly. Well, it didn't. You know, it was it was a topic of conversation even at the original um, Relief Society meetings that Joseph Smith, uh, of which Joseph Smith's comments are recorded in the minutes. Uh, He talked about it, and it was well into the 1920s and 30s under Joseph F. Smith uh, that the conversation continued about, you know, is this this correct? And and the, the, but the bottom line is nobody knows exactly why it was phased out. Um, but, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've done some study of this, and there are a couple of excellent papers written about this, and it seems that there was very little um, sort of pushback from mainstream women in the church at, in the beginning of the 20th century about the, the sort of transition of healing blessings moving from women to the official elders, right? The, the, the injunction was always called the elders instead of giving the healing blessing yourself. And I, that fascinates me. That fascinates me that there, that, that, that there were very few women documented, you know, really expressing um, sadness over this. We have women like Emmeline Wells who, who did express fear that some of her uh, um, authority was being taken away from her uh, she was moved uh, out of her office across the hall from the prophet and moved into the newly built bishop's building instead. And she understood the, what that signified to her. Um, but, but you know, in general, it seems to me, and and perhaps I am, I, a historian could correct me, it, it seems to me that that, that practice uh, eventually in the, 20, in the early 20th century was, as you say, sort of, Sort of followed the the lead of the male leaders, and and you know to take that into a hundred years later to our own uh, example, um, I don't I don't know what the answer is for for what women could do to make sure that some of the things we enjoy today or may enjoy in the next few years aren't again taken away from us. Um, I think I think awareness, you know, I don't I I think recognizing the value that those things uh, bring into our lives. I also think that. Um, more of our male leaders today are, are used to more than ever working with strong women in their workplaces and I think that's probably the first time in history that we will have male ecclesiastical leaders on the local levels who are accustomed to working day in day out with female peers of their same level and it's my hope that they're going to go to church and not and and, and not Be satisfied with treating the women differently at church than they do in their workplace. Um, That's that's one thing I'm hopeful of, and it's one thing that I think we could really see shifting dramatically in the next ten or twenty years, as both men are married to women who have, um, you know, educational experience, perhaps workplace experience, who have certain perceptions of the way that they are to be treated out in the world, and they bring those same perceptions into the church. I think that we might see um, a, a protection of those opportunities and rights that's a little bit more forceful than perhaps in the in the past.
0: Well, that's interesting that, that you're saying that there wasn't this vociferous opposition to having the blessings taken away from women. I think that goes back to, you know, um, Laurel Thatcher Ulrich said, well-behaved women rarely, <laughs> rarely make histories, that we have... Um, an obligation to stand up for what we want and let our new leaders know what it is that's important to us. And I think that this um, book does a good step with that. But as we discussed, we're still sub, I mean, this is still reliant on male leadership to implement. So what can we do when our local leadership is resistant to any type of discussion or change about this in our wards? One of the things I love about
1: Mormonism is that we do have open-door policies to our, 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 all of our leaders, our men and our women. And one of the things that, um, that came up in the book is uh, a, a number of stories that I heard about women who had to change direction when they used that open-door policy and a male leader was not responsive to their ideas. Um, there were stories I heard of that just ended in disappointment, and that was the end of the story. And unfortunately, there those stories will continue. And I don't have a silver bullet for those. I do think, though, um, that I heard many stories of women who, even if thwarted at first, uh, used a different tactic, and that might be infuriating to some women. Um, there was a story where you know a woman suggested to the to the state president that members of the Relief Society Presidency accompany the High Counselor when he goes to different wards to speak rather than having a young return missionary uh, uh, be the High Counselor's um, companion on those assignments. And her reasoning, of course, was, you know, that the, the, the wards in the state could get to know their stake leader, their female stake leaders that way if they came as sort of the visiting dignitary like the High Counselor is and were positioned that way and they would be taken seriously as ecclesiastical leaders. Well, the state president... Didn't bite. So in this story, she goes to a particular high counselor that she is friends with, and um, and gets him to suggest the same idea. Or he he sort of convert, you know, likes the idea as well. And they talk about it, and so he goes and suggests it to the state president. The state president bites that time. Now, you know, I mean, women who have grown up in the church certainly of older generations will tell you legions of stories like that, and they will just tell you that that's the way they've had to work. And and you know, that might not be the way that. That women of your age are comfortable working, and that's fine. I think I think women of your age will find other other means, and those may might be more vocal means. Um, but you know, I, I all I all I can all I can <laughs> tell you is that there will be disappointments sometimes. Um, it takes repeated effort. It takes repeated tactics. It takes an understanding of the personalities you're working with. It takes respect for the personalities you're working with, and it takes a strategic approach to present an idea building on the experience of that leader and building on the concerns of that leader. Um, presenting an idea to a leader just out of the blue with no context may be greeted um, depending on who that leader is uh, in, in not a particularly friendly way. But you know, I think that using that open-door policy as much as we can, becoming friends with our leaders, sharing with them not only our solutions, but primarily our concerns and the way things make us feel may pave the path so that when we do present those solutions, they are more open to them.
0: So you touched on how a release Society leader can travel with um, a high counselor. And that's one way to increase the prominence of female voices. Um, Cause you discussed how we can't emulate people we don't see. Um, how can we increase the prominence of female voices in greater numbers? Where we are at such a, you know, detriment numbers wise, you know, like you talked about in Ward Council, how there are ten men and three women. <laughs> you know, how how yeah. do we um, equal our voice?
1: Well, this is this is not going to be a concern for your listening audience, I'm sure, but but I will tell you, um, in complete, you know. It, it, uh, with, with complete sincerity that, that one of the things I was genuinely shocked by in the interviews is how many times I was told examples of, of when a male leader would propose something and the women would not respond to the opportunity. Um, and I, I think that, that in a particular demographic of church members it might be based on age. It might be based on external experience. It might be based on family dynamics. There is um, there's a widespread uh, sort of unwillingness to uh, increase the public visibility of women. And that's the only way I know how to put it. And it came up time and time and time again where bishops asked the entire Relief Society Presidency to attend ward council instead of just the, the Relief Society President, and they declined. Um, I attended a sacrament meeting that was all women, and at the beginning of each one of those women's talks, it wasn't, you know, the primary presidency or anything, it was just the, they just put together a whole program of women, and at each one of the beginning of their talks, they apologized. Uh, one even quoted the Paul scripture about how women need to be silent in church meetings, and <gasps> and and made a joke about it, and said, "Well, I guess I should sit down now since Paul says I shouldn't say anything." And so, you know, again, I I, I have a feeling this won't be a a great great of uh, great um, need for for your listenership, but I I do think that one of the things we have to be aware of as we're talking about increased women's participation in church is that we are bringing along with us a group of women who are very comfortable in the way that they have negotiated their power. And it is it is about negotiating power. It's not that they're declining power or that they don't want power. It's that they've found a safe space in which to feel powerful. And when you you try and widen the borders of that power, it feels threatening, and they may decline simply, you know, and they could say any number of reasons for why they're declining, right? They don't want the responsibility or the whatever. But what they're really saying is, I feel I have an identity, and I feel powerful within that sphere. And when you're asking me to step outside of that, I'm not. Com- I'm not as confident, and I'm not sure that I will have that same power that I do now. And um, that was really a, a, a really fascinating learning for me uh, as I as I read this book. And so, you know, I think I think uh, men can do what they can. Uh, I have one stake president who I interviewed who uh, asks the women in his uh, stake councils to sit separately, sit apart from each other, because he found that they all just kind of clumped over in a group and whispered among themselves among, until the meeting started, um, and then were a little bit hesitant to pipe up. So he told them they were like a sugar cube, and they had to dissolve throughout the whole group. Um you know but but i think you know my my hope is that we don't have to have men telling us to do that i mean let's take you know let's let's do that for ourselves and and i again i think a lot of that will come intuitively to your listeners but i think we have to remember that we are bringing with us millions of women to who, for whom that may be antithetical to their personality and their upbringing and their experience
0: right well i think that brings a very good point that is highly relevant not only because we are socialized as women both in and out of the church to um be self-deprecating and um to be uh less assertive but also because we are we have to remember we're not just convincing male leadership to further the cause of women we're convincing other women yes um and that takes a different approach Mm -hmm. uh You made a list of some of the positive changes that we've experienced um, in the last few years, such as the lowering of the missionary age and women praying in conference. Um, I think that some, obviously these are very positive strides, but some people might actually think that these changes are embarrassing for the rest of the world to realize that we haven't had a woman pray in our conference Mm -hmm. in in the entire history of the church or that women are required to serve years later after um, men for missionaries. Do you think there are any changes in the book that you think would be similarly maybe embarrassing because it's hard to believe there's an organization that has such restrictions in the 21st century?
1: You know, I, I, I think... You'll hear you'll hear uh, various leaders and various members of the church who say um, women in our church have some of the most privileged places in any organization that I've seen as I've you know traveled or you know worked at different places or whatever whatever it is and um, and in one respect they're absolutely right I I I had lunch with a college roommate uh, a couple weeks ago who was raised Catholic, who is Catholic, and her mother, before getting married and having children, almost became a nun. And my, my I was telling my friend about this book, and, and my friend said, you know, and this is a supremely educated, highly professional woman, and she said, um, you know, Nyland, after my mo- mom decided not to become a nun, she never had an opportunity to ever participate in a Catholic worship service again in her entire life because there is no... There is nothing a woman can do, and and it and that was humbling for me because I have spent so much time in looking at what our women are not included in in our church. Mm-hmm. So that was humbling for me. Um, uh, and not to say that obviously, not to say that you know we don't have a lot of area of improvement, but it was humbling for me to to realize that you know this this stretching that we're doing, these conversations that we're having, are not necessarily unique to our organization and 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 that we you know uh objectively are are farther along than some other organizations that said you know it is it, it is embarrassing to me when we sort of as a as a family um take our you know family feuds outside and <laughs> and um and have so much scrutiny put on them and and where we have uh you know simple things made made into such such bigger mountains than I think that they really deserve to be. I mean, yes, it's, it was exciting when the conference center put up pictures of the women, but, you know, and I think it should have been celebrated internally. Um, I think that the fact that it did become a media story probably uh, didn't do justice to the influence uh, and voice that our women already have, but it also, conversely, um, you know, drew uh too much attention to how much uh our women are limited and so i i'm not sh- uh back to your question is there anything in the book that i think would draw i don't think so because i think uh, you know i think uh, the examples in the in the book are so locally oriented i think they would be local stories at best if there were some sort of external attention put on them um and the other the the other examples you mentioned were general examples where it was sort of a systematic institutional change, so I think that I think that working on the local level probably buffers us from that media attention, that external attention.
0: Now you sent this to the publisher shortly before Kate Kelly was excommunicated. What, if anything, would you have changed about your book if you were writing it now?
1: Well, it was interesting. I did have a chance to change things afterwards and um, i didn 't change much I actually um, I changed obviously a few historical references uh, and i think I think it was you know for me I, I see it as a very providential timing. I wrote the majority of the book from about January to March of uh, two thousand and fourteen and it was a very sort of quiet safe time um, in which in which to write my ideas uh, it I think very at the very tail end of that we got the letter to ordain women, asking from public affairs, asking them not to come to the priesthood section a second time, and then of course two weeks after I submitted the manuscript, um, Kate Kelly received her letter of disciplinary counsel. So the book itself, I mean, you know, ninety nine percent of the manuscript uh, was written in in a quiet time, and I and I I like that because I feel like it wasn't my response to ordain women. It was something that could exist completely separate and apart from from you know, the attention that was was focused on ordained women over the summer. And um, so that's why I think it, it you know, hopefully succeeds uh, as an um, optimistic way to continue the conversation. And the timing, I think, um, only serves to sort of help provide another way that we can continue talking about some of the issues uh, that, that brought a lot of pain over the summer.
0: Great. Well, Nyland, thank you so much for your time and thank you for your work on this book. I think that it, it provides another perspective for um, people both inside and outside of these struggles and thinking about how we can improve um, the place of women in the church.
1: Thanks, Julia. I appreciate you having me.